So we're continuing this uh, this series that I, I, I believe it's Jeremy that kind of ideated and then Sheldon has kind of uh, took the lead on organizing the schedule, the teachers, the calendar. Um, so if you think that you're in the Christian mind and you want to be in the Christian mind class, that's over there. <laughs> so if you're in here by accident, this is the Bible class. Uh, it seems like the Christian mind one is pretty popular too, which is great. But I'm jealous. Um, I'm not jealous. So. Um, but we're on the Bible, and it's about the inerrancy of Scripture, and it's honestly just kind of a really awesome, I think, overview of the Bible, and there's a lot of great topics. Um, so today, what we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about Revelation. The topic was supposed to be the Bible and progressive Revelation, and I do want to spend a lot of time talking about progressive Revelation, but in um, shoring up my own knowledge of the subject, I knew generally what it was. But finding, um, you know, examples of it in Scripture, thinking about other kinds of revelation, I kind of wanted to broaden the topic a little bit and speak to just revelation in general, kind of understand some of the other ver- the other kinds of revelation, and then we get into progressive revelation because it kind of builds on the other ones. So um, to get started, who, I mean, what does the word revelation even mean? Like in somebody else's words, when we say the, the Bible is a revelation, you know, what do we mean by that? What does the word revelation mean? It comes from revealed. Yes. Something revealed. Yes. Yeah, so basically it's, you know, it is something being revealed, right? It is uh, the word revelation and whatever, you know, its root word is um, simply refers to revealing or unveiling. So it's the idea that something unseen is being unhidden, right? So it's being revealed or unveiled. Um, and particularly in Reformed theology, it kind of it refers not only to the act of God communicating to man, and not only the act of him communicating, but also the content of what it is that he's communicating. So when we say the revelation, it's not just it's not just God talking to us, but it's it's him talking to us and what he's saying. Um, would somebody please read Second um, Timothy three sixteen? And then could somebody else read Second Peter one twenty one? Second Timothy. Okay. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Great. And this is one twenty one. Yes, Second Peter. Second Peter one twenty one. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Gotcha. So obviously we talked about a little bit of this in the previous classes, and I think we talked about more, I believe, in one of the other other, um, Sunday school classes. But um, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, as that passage says, which is great for us because it gives us an idea of of why God actually revealed himself to us, what we can use that revelation for. But then also in that Second Peter passage, we see that you know no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we see that, uh, as we'll talk about in other lessons again, that the, the scriptures were written physically by men, but that they were inspired, they were authored by God through the power of the Holy Spirit. So um, the word that, uh, there's some other passage I can't exactly remember off the top of my head, but uh, Paul uses a word, uh, he uses the word that's translated in English as inspiration, 
And so I looked that up in the Greek, and the Greek is, and I'll, I'll butcher the pronunciation, but theonoustos, which is essentially is our direct word for inspiration, but in the Greek it means God-breathed. So again, when we think about the word being inspired, what we mean is that God, like this is the breath of God, right? This is God revealing himself to us. It is God-breathed. So, um, so when we say that uh, all of Scripture is inspired by God, what we mean is that God superintended the human authors of the scriptures so that their words were the very words of God himself. Because scripture is the very word of God himself, scripture then carries the full authority of God himself. It is his word. And because God himself is incapable of error, the holy scriptures are inerrant. And I wanted to include that because that kind of ties us back to the overarching subject matter of the Bible and its its inerrancy and, and things like that. So... All right, so then moving forward real quick, um, there are, before we get into progressive revelation, I want to kind of to briefly cover uh, two other types of revelation, which I think are important to know. Um, does anybody know off the top of their head? We, they're often sort of dichotomized. They're, they're, it's like two different distinct types of revelation. Does anybody know what those are when we think about the revelation of God? Physical. Huh. Sort of, almost. That's part of one. It's a nice way of saying no. <laughs> yeah. I don't know the technical word for it, but let's say it's the revelation that is just uh, that you get just out of the creation, general. out of general. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So John. Yeah, John kind of whispered it, and you kind of explained it. So the first one is general revelation. Uh, and then the second one, if, if the first one is general, what's the second one? Specific, special. Specific, special. <laughs> so there's general revelation and special revelation, and we'll kind of get into that here in just a second. So let's start with general revelation. So just in your own words again, general revelation. Kevin kind of touched on it. What do, what do we mean when we say general revelation? What, what does that kind of revelation look like? What kind of content do you think it would include? Any ideas? I know this one. Do it. Nature, right? The, yes. the creation of God. Yes. The oceans and the mountains. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can I what? read Romans 1.18? Yes, please. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodly unrighteousness of men who were their unrighteousness suppressed the truth. I totally missed some words. But what for what can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. Yes. What is plain? What is it? What is plain to them is shown to them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this is idea that you know, and I, I don't know if it's that passage, or another one, but it says so that with no, so that no man is without excuse. Right. Um, yeah. Somebody. Let me uh, let me finish this definition real quick. I just wrote some notes. So general co- general revelation is content revealed to a general audience. So when we think about general revelation. So that's what I was kind of asking, like, so Barron's right, so through nature, right? We're thinking about natural things. We're thinking about the broad ways in which God is revealed. So general revelation is a very broad revelation. Um, it is through this means that God communicates his existence, his power, and his glory such that men are left without excuse. So what we'll get into in a minute is how that's different from special, right? So let's just think about it in those terms right now. General revelation is God revealing himself such that men know that he exists, right? Like that's the starting point. 
the fact that we even know God exists, we know that through general revelation. We know his power because he's created things, and we know his glory because we've seen Niagara Falls and other such beautiful things, such that men are left without excuse. So could somebody read, uh, so uh, Dave already covered one of them. Um, can somebody please read Psalm 19, one through two? To the choir master, Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Okay, so the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The sky above <coughs> proclaims his handiwork. So it kind of goes back to this idea that God's existence, his power, his glory, um, it's all communicated through the means of general revelation. And then I want to break it down even further because I thought this was interesting. And I'll, for the sake of time, I'll just read it. Um, some much more uh, intellectually powerful theologians other than myself. I'm not a theologian, but uh, they sort of break that down even further. So they break down general revelation into two subgroups. They break it down into um, the immediate general, which is revelation that occurs without an intermediating agency. So that would be just totally like God implanting knowledge in you through creation. And then there's the immediate general, which occurs through an intermediating agency, which God reveals himself through his work. So I'll just read from Calvin's Institutes. He kind of explains this. Um, so of the immediate, John Calvin says, there is, it, there is within the human mind, human mind, and indeed by natural instinct, an awareness of divinity. This we take to be beyond controversy. To prevent anyone from taking refuge in the pretense of ignorance, God himself has implanted in all men a certain understanding of his divine majesty. So that's that revelation of God. Going back to God has made all these beautiful things. We see his existence, his power, his glory through the general revelation, and that no man is without excuse because his divine nature is implanted in us. We cannot take refuge in the pretense of ignorance. And then of the immediate general, John Calvin says, the final goal of the blessed life, moreover, rests in the knowledge of God. Lest anyone then be excluded from access to happiness, he not only sowed in men's minds that seed of religion of which we've spoken, but he revealed himself and, and daily discloses himself in the whole workmanship of the universe. As a consequence, man cannot open their eyes without being compelled to see him. So I included that. Obviously, John Calvin uh, was not an apostle. He's not scripture himself, but I like the way he worded that. Um, he's obviously thought deeply about these things, even more so than probably most of us, and I like the way that he worded that, especially that last line. As a consequence, men cannot open their eyes without being compelled to see him. So I think that's a pretty, pretty powerful testimony to the general revelation of God. So I got a question. Yeah. It's easy for us to comprehend and agree with because I'll make the general assumption that we've all had that revealed through the Holy Spirit. Well, there are a lot of people out there that do not see that yeah. or refuse to admit it, whether they see it or not. How does that, how does that sit with your understanding of non-Christian? You say like what it is. You're saying like they don't it, see it. They don't see the, the general, general revelation. They don't see the general revelation. They don't see general revelation. They see, you know, the, as we talked about the, the shots from the telescope, and they go, "That's not God. That's 
the Big Bang or something. Yeah, or they look at nature <clears throat> and they look at what we see as beautiful and we see it as inspired and yeah. evidence of God, but they see it as absolutely evolution or you know, pick some other reason for existence. It's sure. anything but God. Right. They're desperate to, to explain it away without uh, having to acknowledge that they were created and that they have to answer their creator. Because any any unsuspecting non-Christian, when you ask them, you show them something that's been made, like a book printed with color photos. Like mm-hmm. You ask them, like, do you think that like the tree just fell down and sliced itself into paper? Or you think that... The watchmaker uh, yeah, concept. Exactly. There's yeah. so many different examples. And it's like, if you walk them through that, they, they're like, of course not. You know, somebody made this. And you're like, mic drop, you know? But, but yeah, they still say, well, that's, it's been it's <clears throat> 15 billion years for this galaxy to be what it is. Right. That's not God. That's just through chance and happenstance and gravity and, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But those people, and then the majority of the people are probably of that mindset. Or their eyes have been shielded. Their hearts have been darkened. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, too, if we're talking about, like, general re- revelation, like, God has to open your eyes to even see that the beauty of the earth and so like that, that he created that, you know, so even just seeing all of creation as part of what God has made, I mean, if, if that's in my those, understanding. Yeah, well, in those words, yes. But the way that we understand the scripture to be that with it's all manner with no excuse. Yeah. So kind of to that point, it's like, what's interesting to me, and obviously there are exceptions, but I have yet to meet very, a very staunch atheist who even has an explanation for creation and these things, who feels certain in that, right? Because there's this sense of like, oh, I've explained it. It's this, it's the Big Bang, it's whatever. But there's still this gnawing sense of like, but that may not be right, or I can't prove it, or I can't, you know, I, I can't get to. Does that make sense? Like they're like 99.99 percent like there, but they're with their fists up, and they're very like they just can't. There's not a sense in which, when the spirit reveals these things to us, and our hearts are changed, you know, stones removed, flesh is put in, light to dark, scales fall. Like we understand this and have a piece about it that I don't think, personally. Or, or that I've ever observed an atheist say having somebody who doesn't believe in God in whatever capacity that looks like. I've never seen them have that same level of peace about what these things mean and what they represent and, who, and, and the fact that there is a God. So I think for general revelation, and we'll get, again, we'll get to that, how that's different from special. Um, but it, that sort of, like if we understand that scripture to mean what it means at face value through those words, then all men are without excuse. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they, all men will come to know God through, say, nature. Most, I would say, all of them don't actually. We'll get to special revelation. But just that there's that distinct difference there. Well, I think the other conversation, when you think about a non-Christian, is those that take that immediate general revelation and attach it to another explanation, so the deity that they attach to a false religion. Sure. And those, patient, those people are a little bit more difficult to reach because they can say... This isn't meaningless. Right. This is Allah, or this is right. Buddha, or whatever. Right. Um, and that way, that makes those conversations because they've taken, they've almost acknowledged right. what God has implanted into their heart, but then they've <coughs> taken it and gone in a false way with it. 
Right. But isn't that the whole point of general revelation is that there has to be the watchmaker. There has to be yeah. somebody that created it. Yeah. And then everyone, whether it's the Big Bang and science and facts or it's another religion, right. they're trying to fill something because like, that's the whole point, in my mind, of general revelation. It has to come from somewhere. Yeah. And then people try and fill it in, but you got to have them the whatever that is, special, specific, whatever one, revelation to get to the next step. Yeah. Because you see it, something's got to be there. It can't just be happens. Yeah. Well, I, I think that per, I, I won't be late, um, but per uh, Romans. Can you start first, It's okay. <laughs> but you see in the first chapter, um, uh, basically one of the things he, he basically points he has there is that we can observe the world around us and immediately know that they're, uh, must be a God, but because we're under sin, uh, man either repents and believes based on that knowledge and other factors, or in our sinfulness we try and um, work what God has made good while we can observe and in order to deny that fact. So uh, that's, uh, I think you're talking about uh, evolutionary ideas or Big Bang and all that sort of thing. Man in his sin looks at uh, the world around him and sees that, but immediately uh, a lot of people either presuppose that there must be a God or they or they deny the fact there is a God and so that they um, they have to then pervert uh, that knowledge with uh, some other alternate explanation, which is really just another faith when you get down to um, you know, they, they have faith in a theory because they'd rather do that than have faith in God. I, I have a better way to say that. <laughs> Let's segue that into real quick, just so we stay, because I was late. I'll just uh, keep this moving here. So then that segues perfectly into the the other form of revelation, which is, uh, as John, Kevin, and Aaron said, uh, special revelation, and it has been called specific revelation, though that's not quite as common. Most people call it special. But, so then, if general is the, so, I mean, I'm trying to ask the question without just speaking the whole time. So if general revelation is the revealing of God through, say, nature, his existence, glory, but in very broad terms, or in very broad ways, then what would you think, or how would you describe special revelation in terms of how it's revealed and what it reveals? Special revelation, as I understand it, which I'll probably say poorly, but uh, special revelation is general revelation, of course, is the revealing of God through nature and what we can observe, which science loves that up to the point where they have to believe in God, at least a lot of people. Uh, special revelation is where God chooses by various means to reveal himself to men, men as a group or in particular, uh, such as he like spoke to Adam, or any of the prophets, or you know, uh, I would think that'd be a way of revealing his word to us. Uh, yep. So, special revelation is content sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will, which is necessary unto salvation. So, if you think about it in very broad, oversimplistic terms, 
general revelation is just the revealing of God, period. There's a God. There has to be a God. There has to be a creator. Special revelation is the revealing of the gospel itself. So the idea that we can know God and actually be known by God. General revelation does not communicate the gospel of Christ. It simply uh, communicates that God exists, that he has power, that he has glory, but it doesn't actually communicate the gospel. Uh, while we can know that God exists through the examination of general revelation, we cannot know about the incarnation, atoning death, the resurrection. Uh, we can't know any of these things by you know looking through a microscope or you know looking at nature. We can't know those things, right? So then Hebrews one, and I'll just read this real quick for the sake of time. It it the the first part of that says that God revealed Himself at sundry times and and in diverse manners. Right, which is this idea that God over time revealed himself in certain ways. Um, so just real quickly, I want to read this because I thought this was interesting. Because um, I want to move into progressive and still end on time. Um, so there are three distinct ways. So in the men's Bible study, we're reading this book called, what is it? There's like two versions of it. The Manual for, Manual Christian, for Doctrine, Christian Doctrine, yeah. which is like a condensed version of Louis Burkhoff's larger work. Um, but Lewis Burkhoff actually describes the way that special revelation happens in three ways. So, Devin, you touched on the second one, which is just general communication. So, the hearing of God's voice, speaking to the prophets, Jesus himself coming and teaching his disciples. Those are all forms of special revelation. Um, the other big one is uh, a theophany, which I didn't know that word. I had to look it up. Um, in the Greek, it comes from theophania, which means the appearance of God. A theophany is a manifestation of a deity in a physical or sensible form. So think about the cloud, the pillar of fire, the burning bush. So a theophany is like a physical representation of God. So God communicated to Moses through the burning bush. So those are examples of theophanies. And then the other example are miracles, right? So God revealed some of who he is through Christ's miracles while he was on doing his ministry on earth. Um, so for the purpose of man's redemption and God's own glory, he committed that which he had in times past revealed through all these things unto writing. So that's what I kind of want to move towards. I want to connect the dots here. So holy unto writing, which makes the Holy Scripture to be the most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing himself have now ceased. Therefore, God's special, re special revelation has found its permanent form in the Holy Scriptures, which includes both the Old and New Testament. So, I have a question. I kind of rushed through that, but why is that important? Why is it important for us to know, realize, remember that God's special revelation has now found its completeness in this? Uh, one reason I would talk a lot. One reason I would think uh, is uh, because if anyone were to come along with any quote-unquote new uh, revelation where we can say well you know this is what is set in concrete not be drawn away into some kind of heresy or some other nonsense right yeah <coughs> basically that's why that's important <laughs> good job <Doug. coughs> thanks yeah because if you can't if we can't if we allow for the idea of special revelation to continue if we don't agree within our orthodox belief that the special revelation of God has concluded and exists solely in this. This is where you get cult leaders. This is where you get, not to pick on my some other brothers, but just some really like 
uh, over-the-top charismatic experiences. This is where you get people that say, well, I heard this from God, right? God told me this in a closet where nobody else could hear it or confirm it. Like, that's where you get that kind of thing, right? So when we all agree that this is God's special revelation to us and everything we need for life and godliness is in this book, then that kind of helps set the standard. And we know that if anything that is said, anything that's spoken, anything that feels weird to us, we know that we can go and actually check it against Scripture. And if we know that it doesn't, if it doesn't align with Scripture, we know it to be untrue, right? Like this is the standard. And that's kind of the whole point of this class is just the, the weight, weightiness of this book, what it means for us, its importance, and that kind of thing. So, so the, yeah. Um, the second paragraph of the 20th chapter of the London Baptist Confession, I don't know if that was in part of what you had to look at. <coughs> the promise of Christ and salvation by him is revealed only by the word of God. Then it goes into need to do the works of creation and all that actually provide that. Right. That's general revelation, but it talks about that being yeah. the specific and only way Christ is revealed is through the scripture. Right. So then finally, in the section I would like to spend probably the, the most time on, is then, so then what then is progressive revelation? So when we say progressive revelation, um, what is meant by that? Why is it important? Why does it matter? So the, the idea or the doctrine of, of progressive revelation is the idea that later sections of Scripture, New Testament, have a fuller revelation of God and who he is and what he's done than, say, earlier sections of Scripture. So I want to make sure that I put an asterisk on this. So the latter is more clear and more fuller than the former, but that does not mean that the former is untrue, right? So there are people that will sort of say, like, the New Testament sort of fulfills all the Old Testament. We don't need the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't apply to us. It's not important. That is not true in the slightest. Uh, that movement, sorry, you guys are looking at me. So this way to this way, old to new, is not moving from incorrect to correct or untruth to truth. It's simply moving from truth to more truth to full truth, right? It's moving from truth to truth. So God reveals himself in more clear ways as the biblical timeline progresses, as the content that's revealed to us um, it's moving from truth to more truth. So we would not we would deny the idea that the Old Testament is not important or not helpful because obviously it is. It is the special revelation of God. It exists for a reason. It's also important because we see the types and shadows of things to come, right? We see the beauty of Christ in the Old Testament because it speaks of God or speaks of Christ, reveals him. We just happen to see it more clearly and more defined in the New Testament, but the Old Testament points to it. So it is the ongoing and continuing story of, of God, redemptions of man. Um, so could somebody read Hebrews 1, 1 through 2? God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the, and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So that kind of gives us this picture of progressive revelation, right? So long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, right? But in these last days, he spoke to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So there's that idea of progressive revelation of, you know, essentially God spoke in this way, revealed himself in this way, in these days, and then in these days, he spoke to us in a different way. So that's the sort of this verse that kind of highlights that progression. So the Old Testament then was obviously the, the beginning of that progressive revelation. And now with the New Testament, we have the full revelation of God uh, by which we can see the entirety of God's redemptive plan, which is pretty awesome. So some examples of progressive revelation. So um, I took a bunch of notes from a really awesome uh, book that I read on this. It was uh, like a mini book online. But, um, so to give some examples of the different ways that God revealed himself. And so one of the things I wanted to mention is in reading this, <clears throat> there's a lot of kind of overlap um, between, say, like prophecies and prophecies being fulfilled and the, and the content by which, or the content that God is revealing. Because a lot of God, of who God is and who God was, was communicated through the prophets. It was communicated through the laws that he set for his people. Um, so I'm going to uh, run through a quick example of this, which I thought was really helpful. So in the Old Testament, the Lord obviously dealt with his people uh, through animal sacrifices, right? Um, he attached real and precious promises to the shedding of animal blood, right? He, he promised forgiveness, right? If you will uh, sacrifice this animal, if you give me this, this burnt offering, this blood offering, I will forgive you, right? So I want to show you some examples of this. So uh, can somebody read Leviticus 1, 3 through 4? If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And then can somebody read 420? Thus, he, thus shall he do with the bull. As he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. Right. Hey, can I go back to that Leviticus 1 3 for a Yeah, yeah. My brother, I'm talking about this Saturday, oh, Saturday morning. Um, that animal that was without spot or blemish was typically cared by the family and it like became a pet because they got to keep yeah. this thing without blemish for a for a year. Right. And the picture of putting your head hand on its head, this was your pet. This was an animal you knew, and they slit the throat. So that, that whole act and sacrifice is quite emotional. It's not right. It's not just, at the right. Don't just go grab a goat go, that happens to be clean at the moment and yeah. go, you know, just knock them off. It's just the, the heresy and the the offensive oh, so you're selling those animals? Great, because I didn't do one this year. <laughs> that whole idea is such an offense to the gospel. And yeah. why that's, it doesn't really show it in there, but you start thinking through it from, well, take care of this animal, the whole family's involved, this is our, you know, this is our sin. We're gonna sacrifice it for all, of everything we've done wrong. Yeah. Great picture of, obviously, Christ. And, yeah, and why Christ was so mad and cleared the temple yeah. because they were doing that. We're doing, we're, we're doing it. We're doing it. Where all the Gentiles were supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Another picture of the gospel. That, 
Yeah. Anyway, sorry. No, that's really beautiful. Helpful. <laughs> no, that's awesome. So then to that point, right? To that point. Those weren't deceitful promises that God made, were they? Did those sacrifices atone for their sins? At the time, at the time, yeah. right? It says right there, if he will offer a burnt offering from the herd, a male without blemish, he shall bring to the entrance of the tent, blah, blah, blah. And he will be accepted before the Lord and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Mm-hmm. At that time, if you sacrifice that animal in the way that God asked you to, that covered your sin. Yeah. So there's a time in which that was how sin was atoned for. That was, those weren't empty promises, right? If we see, if we look in the Psalms, we see people of the Old Covenant Church that lived in good peace with God. People of the Old Testament lived in good peace with God. They rejoiced with Him in worship. They knew God as God of mercy, forgiveness, and redemption. Right? Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that the, the animal sacrifices were temporary, expedient, or that the benefits that they enjoyed through the sacrifices depended on a perfect sacrifice yet to be made. Right? So there's no there's no communication from God at this point. Right? that this is a temporary measure, right? Like, they basically, he just said, like, sacrifice the goat, the perfect goat, the blemish, the animal without blemish, the bull, whatever it is, and your sins will be atoned for, right? There was no communication at that point beyond that. Um, it's was, not ending. This right. is forever. We're just right. going to keep killing. Yeah, there's no communication at this point that any that anything else needs to be done, right? No hint of a, a perfect sacrifice yet to come, nothing like that. The Lord made those promises. He attached those promises to the shedding of blood. And then he believed, the people believed those promises and he kept those promises at that time. And yet, in the Old Testament, from time to time, you will see people that realize, they look at this, this whole system, they realize that something better is needed, right? Um, So if somebody will read um, Psalm 51, Somebody start with verse 16 and then back up to verses 7 and 9. Not just 16 and then go back. Read verse 16. Will, yeah, go For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. So there's this sense there that, that there's this situation, if you will, in, in which David is realizing that this is not enough, right? Um, you will not delight in my sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And yet he sees that there is a mercy extended to him beyond what is sort of even said at the time, right? Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear your joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. So he's asking God for these things, knowing that God is uh, faithful, that God keeps his promises, but yet he is seeing and experiencing and requesting a kind of mercy that is beyond what their system has at the time. So then ultimately, and this is one of my favorite chapters, um, Isaiah, the prophet, ultimately sees that only really a person uh, could sub- be a substitute for a person. In the long run, 
uh, he is looking to Hebrews 10, that it, it's, a, it's impossible uh, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, but the precious blood of Jesus can. So uh, in Isaiah, I won't read it because if the whole chapter is really long, but you should go and read it because it's awesome. But it's basically this prophecy of, of Christ and him to come. Like Isaiah ultimately sees that like this sacrificial system, like thank you God because it's forgiven me, my sins are atoned for, but that ultimately, like in order for, for my sins to be forgiven as a human, like my ongoing continual sin, right, the substitute for me has to be another person. And so he calls this out in Isaiah chapter 53, which is really awesome. Um, but I will read Hebrews 10. So I, Isaiah 53 is we're looking for this, for this atoning figure, this substitutionary type person. We're looking to Christ, right? And that is fulfilled in what, in what Hebrews 10 says. And I'll just read this real quick. It says, this is Hebrews 10, 4 through 12. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, though these were offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So as we see here, we see we're moving towards this fuller revelation of who God is, right? So at that point, God revealed himself and basically said, I love you. I'll take care of you. I have all these promises for you. If you'll, you know, make these animal sacrifices, your sin will be atoned. And we start to see David and Isaiah start to realize that something better is needed. And then obviously in Hebrews which is a New Testament book, which is later than an, Old, than an Old Testament book, like the prophets, the Psalms, the book of Isaiah, we see this fuller revelation of who God is. This fully explains it, right? The first came to establish the second. Every priest did daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which never took away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. So as you can see here, <coughs> Hebrews has this fuller revelation of who God is, God's plan for man, what he does and do, what he did and does for man than say Isaiah had at the time, which is this idea of, of the scripture progressing. Some other examples that I'll read really quick. Um, let's see. Um, actually, I want you guys to read this. So somebody read Colossians 1, 25 through 26. Colossians 1. So it starts in the middle of the sentence. Yeah. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. So these examples are going to be a little more on the nose, but these this kind of shows, as, it, as that last line says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Um... John, will you 
find sec, or Colossians 2, 16 through 17 while I read this other one. Got it. So this one, are you already have it? Yeah, go for it. Colossians 2, 16 to 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to the festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Second Corinthians 3, 7 through 11 says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, this is the case. What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For what was being brought to an end came with glory. Much more will what is permanent have glory. So again, there's this idea of prophecies being fulfilled, old covenants being replaced with new covenants, truth moving to more truth, moving to full truth. Lastly, Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to all the saints. So, again, these are a little more on the nose, but there are these references from New Testament writers speaking of these ideas, speaking of the faith, speaking of the things that God has done that are now more clear and fully revealed to them that were not clear and not fully revealed to them previously. So they're referencing the things in the Old Testament, the things of God that weren't yet revealed at that time. So there's some benefits to this, obviously. Um, the scripture testifies um, to a progression of God's revelation of himself to humanity. Um, he did not reveal, reveal the fullness of his truth in the beginning, yet he revealed what was always true. Each portion of scripture uh, kind of builds on the next. And so obviously that's a benefit to us, right? The Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament believers, the Israelites, they had these pictures of who God was. They had these experiences. They had the... Um, some of the Old Testament writings, but they did not have what we have, which is the fullness of God and who he is in this book. This, this condensed version, not condensed, complete version of God's special revelation to us. This is a very powerful thing. And I think for me, one of the things that, that I came out of just preparing for this was, was just even a, even a greater appreciation for what this is and why it's important. Um, obviously, as believers, we know it's important. We know we should be reading it. We know we should be diving into it. But when we understand it to be the fullness of who God is in a way that Old Testament believers didn't have, um, it makes it much harder to take this for granted. Um, the other benefit, I think, um, is that when you understand progressive revelation, when you understand this idea that we're moving from you know truth to truth to more truth to full truth. It kind of helps with, and I don't have any great examples at the moment, but um, it helps put things into focus. So there are going to be times where in a vacuum, if you read something in the Old Testament, then you read something in the New Testament, it feels somewhat contradictory, right? But if you understand that more of God is being revealed as you go and you understand the fulfillment of some of these things, when you understand that God is more fully revealing himself um, as the scripture unfolds, 
then it sort of helps clear up these confusions, right? And we see these things, we read them, and they seem at face value, just in plain English, uh, to be somewhat contradictory of each other. We know that they're not, because that the latter is the fulfillment and the completeness of the former, and so it kind of helps clear up some of those things. I also think that it's kind of an unfinished thought, but in the Old Testament, things were much more physical, and there was more like face-to-face -face interaction, and a lot less was written down. Yeah. But then as more became written down, the interaction between like God and humans became less physical and less direct. It's like the amount of faith required to believe in what God was doing in the Old Testament was just as much as what you have to have now. It was just you it was the total sum of physical and written down is the same throughout history. It just kinda like switches itself. It's not necessarily like I understand what you're saying progressive revelation, but he was just writing his story down. Until the story was fulfilled right. or like completed, yeah. you didn't have all of it, and so it progressed through the story. Yeah. But you still had to have the same amount of faith from then to yeah, now. Absolutely. Another thing you talked about today, just briefly I'll say, reminded me of sort of the, the Bible approach that my old uh, churches uh, took, took part in which was typically really the opposite way of what you how you should read the Bible because it's a historical narrative revealing God over a period of time and most of what was taught when I was young was um, pray to God for a thought you know as though there's something new to be revealed yeah uh, when that when that touches your heart find your scripture then proof text proof text and you're talking about in a vacuum basically you're taught to read Slight passage of scripture almost in that vacuum and yeah. form it to your thought rather than read the context of what God's <coughs> intent was and in, in revealing himself to us was. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I and I'm I don't I don't mean this as a like guilty, legalistic, burdensome thought. I actually mean the opposite, but if you think about Isaiah, I could be off here, don't please don't quote me, but Isaiah wrote that prophecy of Christ, something like 700 years before Christ showed up. 700 years. Think about 700 years ago or 700 years from now. Just think about how large of an amount of time that is. And Isaiah is looking, like believed, who, believed in who God was, knew God, trusted God, loved God, knew that God was faithful, that God kept his promises. Um, and he's ultimately seeing the reality of the situation and seeing this need for a Christ-like figure, right? And it would be 700 years before that figure came. Um, and yet he had faith, and yet he believed that God was who God, who he was, that he was good. Um, so I, I, for me, like, I don't, I don't mean that as a burdensome thought, but just like how much more like, we have than he had. Like all of what God promised, uh, everything that God needed to reveal to us is here and we have it, right? Um, so I don't say that it's like, go home and feel guilty about your level of faith. That's not what I mean at all. But just that, you know, if Isaiah could look to Christ 700 years in the future without having the fullness that we have, just it just it just makes this so much more sweet and, and powerful to have. Makes sense. Yeah. Imagine if we were the saints of old who only had the Old Testament. Like, your perspective of God's character wouldn't have been whole because so much of the way God revealed himself in the Old Testament is power and sovereignty and justice and all these good amazing attributes of God that we shouldn't forget about when 
you know, if we're only reading the New Testament and God becomes a fuzzy friend, like, we have to have the full picture of who God is to understand who he is and who we are before him. Um, I'd imagine if he only had that, like, terrifying, like, the mountain is trembling and you're too afraid, you know, not having the full picture of Christ the shepherd, you know, because obviously he's spoken of and he's hinted at all throughout the scriptures, but, like, Imagine if you were one of the Israelites standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, like terrified of God. Yeah. It'd be really hard for you to picture Jesus, you know, yeah. in a moment. Real quick, I want to end on time because I don't know that I've ever ended on time. So I'm going to end with a quote and then pray real quick. And then for those that want to stick around, they can. But um, this is Alec Moiter, who I'm not familiar with. He's a Presbyterian guy. I read this little mini book. But he kind of concluded with his thought, the old view of the Bible was essentially correct when it said that the Old Testament is Jesus foreseen, the Gospels are Jesus come, the epistles are Jesus explained, and the revelation is Jesus expected. One great, eternal, age-long, developing, and climactic purpose with him as its beginning, middle, and end. So this whole book is, is the revelation of God, and it's the redemptive narrative of God and Christ and his love for us. And it's a good thing. So I'm going to pray for us real quick, and then we can be done. So, uh, God, thank you so much for today. Thank you that you love us um, just absolutely so much. Thank you, God, for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending Christ um, to pay the penalty for our sin. God, thank you that... Because of that, we now re- we now live in the reality of, of being reconciled to you, that we can know you, and that ultimately we'll spend eternity with you. Thank you for that. Thank you for your uh, revelation to us. Thank you that we have the word to live by. Thank you that we have the word um, to know more about you. Thank you for these things that you've given us. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. God, just thank you so much again for blessing us. Um, be with Ryan or Jeremy, whoever's preaching this morning, that you would bless them, God, that you would speak through them and that you would prepare our hearts for what it is that you would have us know and learn this morning. Uh, Just thank you again for loving us first, God. We pray this in Jesus' name.